The life that Jesus calls on his followers to live in the Sermon on the Mount was dramatically different than the world around them. In a world that was filled with religious hypocrisy, rigid traditionalism, where paganism was accepted and immorality was the norm, the message of the Sermon on the Mount was very countercultural. Jesus knew that if his disciples believed his teachings and then lived them out, it would make radical changes in their lives and it would make radical changes in the world around them. And when you look at the life Jesus called on his disciples to live, it's no wonder that so many people rejected his teaching and even responded with hostility. His teachings were so radically different than anyone else's had ever been that they simply couldn't fathom living the life that Jesus talked about. Now, while the world we live in today is different in some ways than the world where this message was first preached, it is still very similar. It's different in the technology we have and the culture that we live in. However, it's the same in that religious hypocrisy and religion and rigid traditionalism still abound. It's the same in that paganism is accepted, only now it's called religious tolerance. It's the same in that morality is accepted, only now it's called freedom. Our world is also similar to theirs, that the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount are just as countercultural to us today as they were to them then. If we were to believe the words of Jesus and live them out, it would require and it would make radical changes in our lives. And it would enable us to make a radical change in the world around us. This is why Jesus' teachings are so often rejected. It's why people want to pick and choose the parts of his teachings that they like and that they will accept. And nowhere is... Jesus is teaching being countercultural and rejected by culture any more evident than in the virtue that we're going to talk about today, the attitude. The attitude we're looking at in Matthew 5 and 5 is where we'll be. It is not really seen as a virtue anywhere in the Western world. In fact, people who have this virtue are often ridiculed. They are considered weak or wimpy. Or in need of counseling to overcome their low self-esteem. Yet as we look at the life of Jesus, we see that he embodied this attitude. He was not weak. He was not wimpy. And he did not suffer from low self-esteem. And yet, he was meek. The attitude we're looking at today is quite possibly the hardest on this list to have. At least I felt it was uh, this week as I realized how often I failed To live this out in my life, I spent a good portion of my week in deep repentance over my lack of meekness. So this was very hard, at least for me. So we're going to look at this. Open your Bible to Matthew 5 and 5. It's page 736 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Matthew 5 and 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Title of the message is Blessed Are the Meek. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, and you are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Lord, we come today with a desire to to know you better, to be more and more like Jesus. Lord, to be like Jesus, it does require us to be meek. And Lord, this this attitude is contrary to our flesh. This attitude is contrary to our culture. And Lord, everything within us and everything around us is going to push back and tell us to reject this idea and this teaching. But God, we are your people and we are filled with your spirit and we are surrendered to your word. So help us to not do that today. 
Humble us where we need to be humbled. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Father, have your way in this service today. Lord, let let your spirit move in this service so much so, God, that we would not be the same when we left. Father, let your spirit move and use the word to, to challenge us, to equip us, to change us, to help us to be more like Jesus. Father, today, let the word be a mirror that... That shows us, Lord, who we really are. That we would see our our flaws and our failings. And we would see, Lord, what it is that you intend for us to be. Because we are followers of Jesus Christ. Lord, let your Holy Spirit then lead us down the path that would make us more like Jesus. God, help us today to be willing to follow your leading wherever you would take us. To do your will that we would be meek people, God. Trusting that in the times to come we would inherit the earth as you said. Father, fill me today with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me not to be hindered in any way to what you want said or what you want done. Lord, it is your will and your words that need to go forth, not mine. We love you, God. Have your way in our hearts, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Meekness is an attitude of quiet, reverent, and humble submission to God that results in gentleness toward others. One of my commentaries described it this way. Meekness is not only the opposite of pride, but also of stubbornness, fierceness, and vengefulness. It is the opposite of self-will towards God and ill-will toward man. The key truth is just what meekness is. Meekness is having an accurate view of myself that is shown in my attitude and conduct toward God and others. Meekness is having an accurate view of myself that is shown in my attitude toward and conduct towards God and others. Now remember that all of the attitudes are interconnected. Right? We start off by being poor in spirit. We recognize our sinfulness and our utter dependence on God for any sort of righteousness. Well, once we understand how unrighteous we are and that we have nothing of our own that leads us to mourn for our sins... We mourn for the things that we have done that are wrong. We mourn for the fact that we have no righteousness of our own. Well, when I understand that I lack righteousness, when I understand the severity of my sins, how can that not cause me to treat other people different? Right? That will empty me of my own pride. That will empty me of self-righteousness. That will empty me of a judgmental attitude where I elevate myself above others. Instead, I will know I am just like them. Without Christ, I have no righteousness over of my own. And it will lead me to deal gently, humbly, kindly with others. Now, I think the attitudes get harder as we go on, right? In the first two attitudes, we are primarily dealing with ourselves in relation to God. If we understand who God is, that God is holy, holy, holy. And what Jesus has done on the cross, we cannot help but see the poverty of our own spiritual life, that we are indeed poor in spirit. When we see Christ who loved us and so died on the cross for our sins, we cannot help but mourn for our sins before God who has loved us so much. 
But then we get to this one. And here, we begin to focus not only on our relationship with God, but also on our relationship to others. That's why it's so hard. I mean, it's one thing to humble myself before the mighty hand of God. It's one thing to acknowledge my spiritual poverty before the the thrice holy God of the Bible. But to allow that poverty of spirit, to allow that mourning to cause me to treat others with humility, kindness, a lack of judgment. Well, now that, that is very, very different. And that is very, very difficult. Especially for us as Americans. As Americans, we are largely a very proud people. We, we pride ourselves on any number of things. And, and just let's be honest, one of the things we pride ourselves on is being better than other people. I mean, isn't it easy for us to be like the Pharisee who looked at the tax collector and said, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men, even like this tax collector? There is a, a lack of meekness in that attitude. That for the meek person would not see himself as better than the tax collector. At best, the meek person would say there, but by the grace of God, go I. The meek person would see the tax collector and know that that what has made him different from the tax collector, it's not his goodness, his righteousness. But it's what Christ has done in our lives. And this is where it gets really difficult. Because again, it is easy-ish to humble ourselves before the thrice holy God of the Bible. It is very difficult to humble ourselves in our dealings and interactions with others. Particularly those we may be culturally conditioned to think we are better than them. We are better than. So what does it look like to be meek? I think there are several characteristics. I had more than what I had time for, so I narrowed it down to these four today. Four things, four actions that meek people will take. I give up my rights. That's right there, it starts out hard, doesn't it? Because we live in a world that we are obsessed with our rights. I mean, we could almost conclude that, that our rights are idols that are worshipped in our culture. In the name of our rights, frivolous lawsuits are filed Every week, probably every day. In the name of our rights, we demand our place in the checkout line. In the name of our rights, we make sure no one takes our turn at the four-way stop. In the name of our rights, we are rude to our waitress because the food is cold or the service is slow. In the name of our rights, we fuss and we fight and we treat each other horribly over the most insignificant Unimportant issues. And yet that is not how a meek person acts. Meek people willingly give up their perceived rights. In all of these, Jesus is the exemplar. He is the example. Think about Jesus in giving up his rights. He's God in the flesh. He had existed in eternity past. In the beginning, He was with God and without Him was nothing made. And yet when Jesus 
came to earth, did he make and demand that people bow before him? Did he demand his rights as God? Or did he willingly forfeit those for the good of mankind? Did he willingly suffer shame and humiliation when he had the right to demand that they bow before him and beg his forgiveness? If anyone ever had rights to demand, it was Jesus. And yet he did not do that. Not even once. Because he was meek. Another great example of this from Scripture is Abraham. Abraham's a pretty familiar guy for most of us. God called him to leave his homeland, to go to the, the land that God would show him. We don't have time to get into Abraham's faith to go off to a place God would show him, not to even know what was going on. But Abraham took his family, he took his possessions, and he took his nephew Lot. And he went out and he began to follow God. Over time, God prospered Abraham and he became wealthy. And, and what happened was, everyone associated with Abraham, they got the overflow of Abraham's blessings. That meant Lot also became very wealthy and prospered. In fact, the two of them became so wealthy that the land where they were both staying was not able to support all of their livestock. There was not enough grass, there was not enough water, there just wasn't enough stuff to support Abraham's livestock and Lot's livestock. It got so bad that there was a fight between the people that worked for Lot and the people that worked for Abraham. Now, Abraham at this point was the head of the family. And in that culture, that meant something. I mean, that was significant. He had all authority. right? I mean, as the head of the family, what he said went. Whether Lot liked it or not, whether anyone liked it or not, no one could buck him. And so Abraham could have settled this dispute in any way that he wanted to do it. And Lot would have had no choice but to accept Abraham's decision. But notice the meekness of what Abraham says. But Abraham said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, I'll go right. If you go to the right, then I'll go left. But Abraham knew that part of what had to be done was that he and Lot had to separate. There was just they were too wealthy and they had too many, too much in the herds to be able to dwell together like that. But as the head of the family, Abraham had the right to say, I'm staying here, you go over there. Or I'm going to go over there and you stay here. Or I'm going to go over there and you go over there. I mean, whatever he wanted to do. However he wanted to determine it, that's what would have happened. And Lot would have had no choice but to surrender to Abraham's right as the head of the family. But what Abraham did was give up his rights. He said, I, I could choose because I'm the head of the family, but what I'm going to do, Lot, you choose. You do what you want to do. You look at all the land. And you see which direction you want to go. And wherever you want to go, you go there. And I will go the opposite way. You pick. Now if you know the story, the Bible says Lot lifted up his eyes. Which again, we don't have time to get into the lack of meekness in the picture of lifting up your eyes. 
But what Lot did was he looked and saw the well-watered plain of Jordan and he chose that for himself. In essence, what he did was chose the best part. He looked at all that was before him and he said, that land over there is better than this land over here. I'll go over there to where all the water and where the good plains are, Abraham. And you stay here and you take what's left. Abraham gave up his rights, even though it could have cost him financially. Even though it made his life a little more difficult. Abraham gave up his right to choose so that Lot could have that first choice. One of the reasons I wanted us to see Abraham's example of meekness is because greed and selfishness destroy meekness. One cannot be greedy and meek. One cannot be selfish and meek. Greed by its very nature is selfish. And greed and selfishness destroy meekness. Lot was greedy and selfish and chose his land to be the best land. Abraham was meek and he gave up his rights to choose whatever land. Greedy and selfish people live lives focused on them. They want what they want and they want what they feel they deserve in life. Meekness, on the other hand, it allows us to look beyond ourselves, our desires, and what we consider to be our rights and think about others, even, even if that decision would cost us something personally. That is the attitude of meekness that Jesus had. It is the attitude of meekness that Abraham had. And it is the attitude of meekness that Jesus expects that we would have. So if I'm meek, I, I will give up my right. But also, if I'm meek, I serve others. What does it mean to be a servant of others? That's a very common thing to say, particularly in Christian circles. But what is it? To be a servant, to serve, it means that you really kind of have a genuine delight and a desire to help others. If you were raised in church and you went to vacation Bible school or Sunday school as a child, you probably learned the path to having joy, didn't you? What's the path to joy? Jesus, others, yourself, right? I mean, we heard that, I heard that all my life. That's how you have joy. That's how you serve. That's how you live as a meek person. You put others ahead of yourself. Now, again, with Jesus, that was his example. Everywhere he went, he did what he could to help those in need. Now, he might have healed the sick. He might have forgiven sins. He might have multiplied food. But whatever, wherever he went, he met the needs. He served the people that were there. On more than one instance, when Jesus went to serve others, he had actually gone away to, to get alone. At one instance in particular, his cousin, John the Baptist, had been murdered. Jesus and his disciples had been very busy on mission. And he said, let's go away by ourselves for a time, and just a time to refresh and get ready to go out and be on mission again. But the people, they followed him. And they went out there. How easy would it have been for Jesus to tell the people, 
Give us a couple of days. My cousin just died. We've, we've worked really hard and been busy. So busy, the Bible says, they hadn't even had time to eat. But come back in a couple of days. Let us refresh ourselves and we'll meet you and we'll do what we can. But that's not what he did. Instead, as the people came, Jesus immediately began to serve them. Jesus, his attitude of servanthood, it went on and on through his life, down to the point that he did two things that really exemplify service. One, he washed the disciples' feet, which, again, we're familiar with that, but man, can you imagine? I mean, we we have feet washing services, free will Baptist, but typically when we do it, I mean, I don't know how you are, but for me, like, I go through the day and then I go home and I wash my feet and I put some powder on and I even change socks so that it's not all funky when I take off my boots and we begin to, to do feet washing. Right? But when they gathered there to wash feet, I mean, they, I mean, they didn't bathe every day. There wasn't foot powder. They didn't have clean socks. They walked around in sandals on, dirty, on dirt streets where the animals had used as the bathroom. When Jesus washed their feet, it was funky. It was dirty. But here's the Lord of glory down on his hands and knees, washing the feet of his disciples, even the disciple that would betray him and lead him to be crucified. That's servanthood. And then, of course, the greatest act of servanthood was the cross. Gave his life as a ransom for many. That's what servanthood looks like. It's not always easy. It's not always convenient. It's not always clean. And sometimes it requires a sacrifice from us. Does that describe us? Is that who we are as human beings, as followers of Christ? Not only do we serve people, but do we care about the people we're serving? Do we desire to do what we can to help them in any way that we can? If we tell someone, hey, if you need my help, let me know. Is that sincere, a sincere offer? Or is that just the things that we're supposed to say at certain times? I read something once that challenged my opinion. Being a servant more than anything I've ever read. And here's what it was. You can tell you're a servant by how you act if you're treated like one. I mean, that's a challenging thought, right? I mean, it's one thing to serve someone if they gush over it afterwards. Oh, you're so great. Thank you so much. I love you. I so appreciate what you're doing. <sighs> Thank you. I am pretty great, aren't I? Right? I mean, that just makes us feel good. But what if we serve someone? We go out of our way to do something, and not only do they not acknowledge it, but they act somewhat entitled by it. I mean, they, they deserve our service. I mean, what if we serve someone and they treat us like we're the waiter at the restaurant? Oh, yeah, thank you very much. Have a good day. How do we react to that? I mean, that's a a whole different story. I mean, that's where it shows whether or not we're truly meek people who serve. Outside of Jesus, one of the best examples of a person who served in this way was what we call the Good Samaritan. You know the story. A man goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho and is attacked by thieves. They they beat him and they rob him. They leave him naked and bleeding and and almost half dead. Not long after he's done this, a, a priest walks by, 
sees him lying naked and bleeding in the road, crosses on the other side of the road so they didn't have to deal with it, and ignores him and goes on about his day. Next, a Levite, who was basically a temple assistant, sees him, and he also ignores. But he does more than ignore. The Levite, the way the Bible describes it, gives me the impression that he basically walks up and looks at the guy and says, or doesn't say anything the Bible doesn't say, but he looks at him and then he crosses the road. You, you might, now if I were a meddling preacher, I would say he walks up and says, Whoo, that's bad, I'll pray for you. hope things get better. And he crosses by the other road and he doesn't do anything about it. Now neither of those two men could have been bothered to help this guy in his hour of need. And there could be all kinds of reasons. As workers in the temple, it could have been that they didn't want to become ceremonially unclean for touching this guy. I mean, what if he was actually dead or died in the process of them trying to help him? They would be unclean for a while. It could be that they felt this guy got what he deserved. I mean, they, their view of things at that time was sort of that good things happened to good people and bad things happened to bad people. It could be that they thought it was a trap. If they get down and they begin to help, then other bad guys are going to jump out of the woods and that's going to happen to them for real. could be that they were busy. And they were just too busy to get involved in that situation. could be that it was just an uncomfortable thing. I don't know about you, but coming across somebody naked and bleeding in the road, that would be an uncomfortable thing for me to get involved with. So I can see that they might think, man, this is just a little more than I'm comfortable doing right now. And it could be that they just thought they were too good. To help someone like that. Not an uncommon mindset for people of that day. For people who were priests and Levites. We don't know why they didn't take the time to help. We just know that they didn't. But then the Bible says Jesus said a despised Samaritan comes walking down the road. And he responds very differently than they did. So he went up to him and he bandaged his wounds. He poured oil and wine. He set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn. And he took care of him. He served him. He went up and he served him. He wasn't too busy. He wasn't worried about getting dirty. He wasn't above being involved in this situation. He wasn't worried about the potential danger. In fact, when you look at that, you you see a deep level of involvement. I mean... To be beat to the point that you couldn't get up and you were bleeding and you were about half dead. I mean, that, that's more than putting a band-aid on a boo-boo and helping him up, right? I mean, that's a significant amount of time to bandage him. Then there is the involvement of you can't bandage someone like that up without getting blood and junk on you, can you? I mean, it's just not a possibility. On top of that, he poured oil and wine on him. Again... Very common way to deal with things. But oil and wine were expensive. There was an expense involved in what he did. Then he he put the man on his own animal, which meant he couldn't ride. And he had to walk. And then he had to have led the animal and walked rather than rode. There was inconvenience involved in what he did to serve this guy. But, But it didn't even stop here. He took him to an inn. And the Bible says that, I I can't believe that. Um, Luke 10.35, didn't make it onto the slideshow, don't know why. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave more money, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And whatever you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So he, he really got very financially involved. He was physically involved. 
He was financially involved. I would say he was likely even emotionally involved as he wanted this guy to take care of him and he wanted to make sure it was okay. I mean, there were all kinds of reasons he could have given for not doing this. As a Samaritan, and I think from the indication in the stories that the man that was hurt was a Jew, he could have even said, a Jewish man would not have done this for me. Because he wouldn't have. He had all of this. It's going to cost too much. It's going to take too much time. It's inconvenient. It's messy. It makes me uncomfortable. But he didn't let any of that stop him from getting involved and serving this guy in the way that he could in his time of need. It's not uncommon for us to say, well, I would serve or I would do this, but that sort of thing makes me uncomfortable. Or I don't have time. I'm really a busy person and I don't have time. Money's tied and, and I don't really think I could give anymore. That's just, I don't, who would want to be involved in a messy situation like that? I don't think I can. And yet we learn from the Good Samaritan that none of those are really good excuses. Because how did the story end? Jesus asked, he said to the, the Pharisee that initiated the conversation, so which one of these guys? was a neighbor to the man that fell among thieves. The guy said, well, the the one that helped him. How did Jesus respond? Go and do likewise. So what does Jesus expect us to do when there are people in need and we have the ability to help? To bandage their wounds, to pour the oil and wine, to set them on our own animal, Take them to the inn and to do what we can to care for them. Really, all of the excuses we typically give, they're they're not good excuses. They, They may soothe our conscience, but they really don't excuse our lack of serving others. And in the context of today's message, they reveal that we're not really a meek people. Because meek people can rise above their discomfort. And serve others. Meek people can rise above the cost and serve others. Meek people can can just put aside any hindrance that they would have and any reason they would normally give, and they can do what they can to help others because they're meek and they're trying to become like Jesus. So I give up my rights, I serve others, and then thirdly, I let God define me. One of the things that pushes us away from being meek is our fear that others will think that we're weak. I mean, that is a huge, huge thing. But we are afraid of what others will think of us. We're we're weak. We're wimpy. We are pushovers in life. But meekness is not weakness. Weakness is due to negative circumstances, such as a lack of courage or a lack of strength. Meekness is not a lack of strength or a lack of courage. Meekness comes from a conscious choice that we make. Meekness is strength and courage under control. And when we don't understand what meekness is, we do whatever it takes to keep people from thinking that we're weak. Meek people, for instance, Jesus was going to tell us in a few months, We're to turn the other cheek if someone slaps us. 
Now, why would we not turn the other cheek? Because people would think we're a wimp, right? People would think we're weak to just let that happen and not show them who's boss. But a meek person doesn't care what the other people think. It's not that they're afraid. It's not that they think they're going to get whipped. The meek person may well be able to to issue a beatdown that would make YouTube. But they choose not to because they don't care what other people think of them. They don't need other people to think they're tough and they're strong and they're mighty. They care about what God says. They let God define who they are and what they are. We overcome that desire to prove ourselves to the world, to to let the world define us by knowing who we are in Christ. When we are confident of who we are in Christ, we're not going to worry about what others may think of us. And this this is what Jesus did. Think about how many times in the Gospels people tried to get Jesus to prove who he was by doing a sign or a wonder. How many times did Jesus give in to that and say, let me show you who I am? Zero. Think about on the cross when the people ridiculed him and said, oh, if you're the Christ, come down from the cross and we'll believe you. Did Jesus come down from the cross? No. Why? Because he didn't have to prove himself to them. Jesus knew who he was. He knew He was the Christ, the Son of God. He knew He was the Messiah that was to come into the world. He didn't need their approval. He didn't need their accolades. He didn't need them to acknowledge who He was because He knew. He knew who He was. Even in His trial, Jesus modeled this attitude. How many times did Pilate say, give me an answer? Tell me who you are. Don't you hear what they're saying? And the Bible says that he he didn't open his mouth against their charges. Why? Peter tells us it's because he left his case in the hands of God. Who always judges everything fairly. He knew what would happen. He knew that in the end it would be proven he was right. He was the Christ, the Son of the living God. He didn't need to prove it to them. When we're meek, we are more concerned about what God thinks about us and our actions than we are about what others think about us or our actions. Meekness frees us from the need to prove ourselves to those who oppose us or criticize us. It allows us to focus on God and what God wants for our lives. It allows us to focus on God and who God says that we are. It allows us to focus on God and God's appraisal of our lives and not anyone else's. When we're meek and the world says we're fools for serving Christ, we're okay with that. Because we know we're not. When we're meek, 
We're not concerned when the world thinks that we're lame because we don't do the things that they do because we know what God thinks about it. When we're meek, we're not concerned if the world thinks we're cowards because we turn the other cheeks because we know that we are following the Lord of glory and seeking to do His will. When we're meek, we're not worried about the accolades of man because we know the accolades that will come from God are what really matter. Meekness. Meekness allows us to live for the opinion of one. For God and God alone. Because we know that who He says we are and what He says about our life and what He says about our actions and our reactions and our values and our priorities and our attitudes. What He says is far more important than what anyone else says. When I'm meek, I let God define me. And then finally, I let God determine what honors I deserve. Jesus did what He was supposed to do, and He trusted God to give Him the honor that He deserved. He never sought His own honor. He never said, bow before me, worship me, I'm the Lord of glory. He never sought the the praise of man. He never performed miracles to to cause them to clap and to honor Him. In fact, at those times when they wanted Him to, as I said, He did not do it. And, And Philippians 2 says that because Jesus lived that way, that God has given Him a name that is above every name. And that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Here's the neat thing about that. Jesus lived. He was executed. And he rose again. And none of that ever happened in that life. Time has gone on for thousands of years. And yet still the time has not come for every knee to bow. And every tongue to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He had a long view of it. He knew that God would give him the glory and the honor he deserved and he was willing to wait for God's timing to do that. Not demand it, not expect it, but to wait for God the Father to give it to him when it was right. That's meekness. The meek are not overly concerned with the honors that they deserve. The honors they feel that they deserve. The meek know that God sees all that they do. And if God determines they need to be honored, then God will honor them and God will do it in his time and in his way. A great biblical example of this outside of Jesus is King David. Now, there are two examples of David's meekness in one story. David's son Absalom had rebelled against David and David was fleeing for his life. And while he was fleeing, this initial flight flight from Absalom, there were two instances where David shows meekness. The first one says, The king says to Zadok, who brought the ark of God to him, Carry the ark back to the city. If I find favor in the eyes of God, or the eyes of the Lord, He'll bring me back, and He'll show me both it and His dwelling place. But if He says thus, I have no delight in you, well, here I am. Let him do as seems good to him. And the other comes in the next chapter. 
when a relative of the former king, Saul, meets David and begins to curse him. David's soldiers ask for permission to go and kill him. Here's what David says. See how my own son who came from my own body seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamin? Let him alone. Let him curse. For so the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing on this day. And both instances, David displayed the kind of meekness we're talking about. Now, the ark was the representation of God's presence among his people. David could have easily said, I am the rightful king. The ark should go with me so that everyone knows I'm right and Absalom's wrong. Instead, what did he say? Send the ark back. This may be God's will. If God delights in me, maybe He'll bring me back and I'll get to see it and I'll get to be with it again. But if not, my life belongs to God. He'll determine what I do. When the Benjamite cursed him, how easy would it have been for David to let his mighty men kill the man? Instead, David says, How do I know that God hadn't sent him to do it? If God delights in me, he'll maybe he'll give me good for this evil. But if not, my life is in God's hands. Let him do as seems right to me. David's meekness kept him from feeling the need to demonstrate his greatness. David's meekness kept him from the need to try to make everyone recognize The honor he deserved. It freed him to let God determine what kind of honor he deserved. And let God determine what kind of honor should be bestowed. When we're meek, we don't worry about receiving honor and rewards for people. When we're meek, we're free to trust that God will honor us if we deserve to be honored. That God will reward us if we need to be rewarded. And if not, that's okay too. My life is in God's hands. He will do what is best. Meek people don't sit around and think about all of the honor that they deserve. Meek people don't sit around and think about the ways that people should praise them and tell them how wonderful and how good and how tremendous they are. Meek people know that if God wants them to receive those kind of honors, God will see to it. And if God doesn't see to it, then God hasn't seen that they deserve it, and that's fine. Their lives are in God's hands. Now, the promise for the meek is that they shall inherit the earth, which is, again, contrary to popular opinion. The world at large doesn't think of the meek as gaining the world. Instead, they think of the meek as becoming the doormats of the world. Jesus said that's not really how things work in his kingdom and in the long run. Those who are meek will receive peace and contentment in this life and they will reign with Christ in the life to come. They receive it all in the end. There is a a reversal of fortunes. As we look at the four ways that we live when we're meek, can we honestly say that meekness is an attitude that we possess and we exhibit? And if not, what are we going to do about it? Because here's what we can do. We can do something or we can do nothing. Now, if we do nothing, that's what changes. That's what gets better. Nothing. 
If we want to model the attitude that Jesus modeled, if we want to be like Jesus, we have to be meek. And that means if meekness is not a trait that we possess, an attitude that we exhibit, we we have to do something. I think it starts by, at the very least, recognizing our deficiencies. Recognizing that I'm not willing to give up my rights. I don't like to serve others. I'm not ready to let God define me. And I think a lot about the honor that I deserve. Now that's the beginning to recognize that and to be honest about it. And then to say, God, this is wrong. Help me. God, my attitude on this is is terrible. Fix me, Lord. I, I, I mean, I don't know. There's not a particular prayer to pray, right words to say. But this week, as I have prayed about this, as I have repented about this, what I have said most often is, God, fix my heart. Because it ain't right. It's broken. It's wicked at times. Shine the light in there and show me what I need to repent of and and purify it. Make it clean. Because, I'll be honest, the, the areas of meekness I fell in, they make me miserable. I mean, it's not a, a happy life to sit around and think about all the honors you deserve. I know people like that, and they are the most unhappy people I know. But they shouldn't have said that. I deserve better than that. They should treat me better than that. Those are bitter Angry people. Well, we don't let God define us. We will constantly be reacting sinfully to others. To prove we're not the negative things they say we are. We are something better than that. Miserable. Serving others. I mean, there's just... I mean, other than being the the absolute selfish person that just never does anything for anyone else... Serving others is a part of life. At our jobs and home and marriage. And if we're not meek, serving others is going to make us miserable. We're just going to gripe and be miserable the whole time we do it. If we're not meek, I mean, again, we all at some point have to give up our rights. Unless... Now, I've seen people at Walmart throw fits over the who was in line. I've, I've been the person. Not at Walmart here. This is before I was a preacher. Been the person that have acted like that. It's shameful. It's miserable. There is no peace. There is no joy. There is no Christ-likeness in not being meek. So we have to acknowledge it. and Acknowledge it's sin and it's wrong. And then go to God and say, change me. Fix me. And we will always be in conflict with the Spirit of Christ because the Spirit of Christ that's within us is leading us to be like Christ. So He's leading us to give up our rights. He's leading us to joyfully serve others. He's leading us to to let the offense go and let God define us. He's leading us to stop thinking about the honor we deserve and, and let God give us whatever honor we deserve. So there's always going to be that conflict. Let go. Use this time that we're going to have today And let go.
Confess it. Ask God to forgive you, to change you, and ask Him to to help you to let it go. Because there is no peace, there is no joy, there is no Christ-likeness while resisting these things. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. We listen to what the Holy Spirit wants us to do in response to His Word. If you have never trusted in Jesus for your salvation, that's where it has to begin. Everything rises and falls on faith in Christ. To become like Jesus, we actually have to know Jesus. So if that's your need, right now in this time, you spend it calling out to Christ to save you. Maybe you're here and you've strayed, you've fallen away, or you just, you just see that these, this is not your life. Use this time. Let the Word be a mirror to show you what needs to be changed. And use this time to specifically confess and repent of issues in your life that keep you from being meek.